Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get started this week, I want to thank you all for coming along with us as we tried something different last week. It seemed to go pretty well, and many of you dropped us notes on Instagram and Twitter and an email that that you enjoyed it. So I think we may do that again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thanks. This week, Anne Brigman. My first guest is Kathleen Pine. She's the author of Anne Brigman, The Photographer of Enchantment, which was published this week by Yale University Press. The book details Brigman's life and work, with a special emphasis on her pictorialist successes of the early 20th century. Pine is Professor Emerita of Art History at the University of Notre Dame. Amazon offers the book for $53. On the second segment, recent acquisitions at the Sheldon Museum of Art. But first, Kathleen Pine, after the break. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the Wex. It's all at wexarts.org. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects, in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Kathleen Pine, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Today we think of Anne Brigman as being in the third-ish generation of artists to make work in the Sierra Nevada, and of course we inevitably identify her with California. But your Anne Brigman story starts in Hawaii. How was Hawaii crucial to who Anne Brigman would become? She was part of a very important missionary family, part of the first wave of Americans to come in and colonize. Her grandfather was incredibly important in Hawaiian society. He was able to ingratiate himself into royal circles so that they were an incredibly privileged family, both in terms of the way they were rewarded for the different institutions 
they helped set up. But I think what I was more concerned about, I mean, she did feel herself very much a part of this ruling class, elite family who was very important to colonial society. And she, she always thought of herself, as she said, as a high-born woman. But her childhood was very, very formative for her. She wrote about this much later as well in autobiographical statements, and she wasn't unique in this at all. The children of these American missionaries were allowed to run free over the beautiful paradisal landscapes, the, the neighborhoods they lived in, just north of Honolulu, which were also part of Crown Land. So they were the, probably one of the most beautiful parts of Oahu, just north of Honolulu, where there were fresh springs and pools and just gorgeous, as you can imagine, flowers and shrubbery and scenery. This is the way she grew up, running, as she said, wild as a little savage, running over the landscape, which became very important to her Hawaiian nature and all of its paradisal aspects, as well as its terrifying aspects, because, of course, Hawaiians believe that nature, all the different elements, the mountains, the trees, the pools, were inhabited by nature spirits. And so that was key to her feeling for, for nature. Nature was both beautiful, gorgeous, lush, paradisal, and at the same time inhabited by powerful spirits, nature spirits, that could be angry, like Pele, the the goddess of the volcanoes, who, you know, her anger would spill over in in volcanic ash and lava running down the sides of the the volcano that was held by the the Hawaiians to be her her hair, strands of her hair running down and spilling out over the volcanoes when they erupted. But everything had was inhabited by some kind of a nature spirit. And so living with this, running free through this kind of landscape, hearing these myths as a child was very much a formative experience for her. And that's what she brought with her, one of the, the key things when she came to the mainland when she was 16 years old. She came with her family to a farming area south of San Francisco and then later settled in San Francisco with when she got married in 1894. Brigman comes to the mainland in 1884. You mentioned she gets married. So how did she come to photography? How did she discover it? Why did, why did it interest her? So this has to do, too, with, with the conjunction of being a woman in San Francisco, that women had incredible freedom to roam the city, and they were, it seems to me, liberated in many ways before women on the East Coast were. They had privileges, freedoms, and several of the daughters, in particular, faculty and professionals who were locating themselves in Berkeley around the new, in the new university district at that time, took up photography and came into the city, set up studios there near the Art Institute on Knob Hill, and where also young, some of them had actually studied there at the art, at the art institute, studied painting, and also made this transition from painting 
to photography, which seemed, you know, an exciting field, but one they could also, it helped to maintain their independence. It helps them to bring in an income. They could do portrait work, for example, at the same time they were pursuing art photography. And so it helped them to become independent women. And there were very prominent women like Adelaide Hanscom and some of her friends, Emily Pitchford, Laura Adams Armour, who set up studios in the main district of San Francisco. And I'm sure all of that got Brigman's attention, that she was an inveterate gallery goer and visitor of the the art district below uh, Knob Hill, where all of the galleries were, the framers and these galleries that kind of served as all-purpose sort of art centers. They they featured, they were bookstores, they were galleries, they sold art supplies, they did everything. And so she obviously became familiar with this new sort of burgeoning scene in which women were participating in photography and setting themselves up as not only photographers for hire, but also art art photographers. So she somehow got a little Kodak and started photographing. And these first, the first, I think, or second, the second big photo exhibition, the annual was a juried exhibition that was organized, I think, by the camera club she managed to get several pictures in that exhibition, uh, probably as many as almost any anyone else. And so she kind of burst on the scene right after the turn of the century, 1902, 1903. She was really a very ambitious and interesting person who thought very highly of herself, pushed herself forward, and started corresponding with Alfred Stieglitz in New York, who was of course, the most important impresario of art photography in in the United States. She started a correspondence with him, asked if she could join his group of elite photographers. I think he saw no reason to deny her at that time. He said, all right, but he didn't make her a full member. She was still on a kind of trial basis as an associate for a while till he watched her developed and thought she was more deserving of being a full member of his elite band. But so she came to, to prominence in those early years with photographs that when we look back at them now, don't seem to me to be remarkable at all. Just kind of local shots of kind of local scenery and types of fishermen and mariners. I think she used her husband. So let me, let me jump in with, with, with a couple things. You mentioned the importance of women and their leadership role in the Bay Area's cultural life and how different that was from the East. And there were some extraordinary precedents that I imagine that Brigman would have known of. One was, of course, Jesse Benton Fremont's pioneering role in creating California culture writ large from the 1860s. More recently, there was the example of Phoebe Apperson Hearst, the widow of mining entrepreneur George Hearst. And Phoebe was, um, in the 1890s, uh, particularly a whirling dervish, an absolute, an absolute force, force of nature. You mentioned that Brigman came to know Stieglitz. I, she first saw his work probably around 02 or 03. Is it through Stieglitz she came to kind of her interest in soft focus and blurred form is what we now call pictorialism? 
at the 1903, the annual exhibition of uh, this juried exhibition of local photographs, they also included, they managed to get a hold of a large cache of photographs by these group of elite photographers that Stieglitz had organized in New York into a group called the Photo Secession to signify that they were different. They were apart from the way that photography was normally regarded as a kind of mechanical means of reproduction. They were trying to push photography to become high art. And so these were some of the most famous photographers in the country who were on exhibition in San Francisco. And I'm sure she studied those photographs very, very closely. I think you're absolutely right. She did learn a huge amount from seeing those photographs up close and personal. She was also an inveterate reader of journals, uh, all different kinds of art journals, photography journals. So to be sure, she had had seen some of their work in the different art journals that art galleries like Vickery's where she had her first art exhibition or Paul Eldridge's, would have, they would have carried this kind of literature. And I know that she spent hours sitting there and going through the journals and reading, reading them and learning about them. So definitely she learned so much from this early experience of seeing those photo secession or pictorialist photographs up close. She had the opportunity to study them in 1903, and some of her work after that does seem to suggest certain particular compositions that were shown at that exhibition. But she had to go through more, let's say, than just looking at other people's work in order to come up with her mature, let's say, what her contribution was going to be, both to Bay Area culture and to the larger, you know, national dialogue about photography. Before we before we get to those, I mean, it seems to me that two other things that must have informed her mightily were William Keith, who was the foremost by far Western painter, Western resident painter of, of the time. Keith, by 1902 or three, was already making paintings with soft focus and blurred forms informed by Swedenborgianism. Keith was a Swedenborg as was Keith's friend George Innes, who traveled to San Francisco in the early 1890s. They spent a year or so making work together. And I can imagine how the ideas you noted earlier that Brigman brought from Hawaii into California would have found sympathy with, with Swedenborgianism as well. We know that she knew him and that she adored him, Keith, as being the only artist to be present at his funeral when he died, I think in 1911. And she, of course, would have known the murals in the Swedenborgian church. That was the most, probably the most famous building in San Francisco, you know, at the turn of the century. And she would have spent time there visiting the chapel and it, it was very much part of her personal credo, her personal religion of the sacrality of nature as a space in which to commune with the spiritual. So you, the, the, those, early, those 1902 pictures you mentioned before that were reproduced in, in camera craft were studio productions. What motivated Brigman out of the studio and out into nature 
in the mid-1900s? Well, actually, maybe there's a bridge, I would say, between the studio and her going up into the Sierra. And that was around, I think, 1903. Well, right after she saw those photosecessionist works, of course, some of those photographs featured nudes in outdoor settings. So there's was one thing. She could see that, okay, this is what famous photographers were doing on the East Coast. The other thing was she had a, a short period where she was emulating the number one woman photographer in the entire U.S. of A., and that's Gertrude K. Sabir. So we see right after uh, Brigman went and, and saw those photosecessionist pictures, she had a period where she tried to do a lot of white-on-white compositions, uh, sometimes in gum bichromate, and, and none of those things have survived. We know them from their reproductions, again, in camera work. Gum bichromate is a medium that looks like, in fact, is difficult to tell from pastel or any sometimes a drawing with a very soft, blurred kind of crayon. So, again, it's another attempt to make photography into something that resembles what everybody would immediately identify with as a, an art object, a painting or a drawing. Those things didn't go down. Uh, Stieglitz didn't approve of those. I mean, he already had a case of beer. He didn't need another an imitation case, case of beer in his group. So he was not so supportive of that. And the next year, 1905, we find her going up to the area around Lake Tahoe and taking pictures up there. And that, that was the first set of photographs that she came back with from this kind of hiking experience. She went with another woman, a woman who was a sculptor, getting uh, great press in San Francisco as someone to watch, an up-and-coming woman artist. I think Brigman, who was incredibly ambitious, really wanted to be one of those women, too. So she was looking for some way to put herself on the map, you know, some way to carve out a niche that would be totally hers. Doing these in- incredible things, at first photographs, the first set of photographs, some of them are very choreographed. They're things like Call of the West Wind or Incantation, something like that, where these figures are raising. They're almost like, they reminded me of Curtis's photographs of Native Americans uh, calling out, chanting into the wind. And this is how she used her, her, her women to tell the story of spirits that lived in the High Sierra. And then we're into another set of myths, nature myths immediately. She moved to Oakland in 1898 from San Francisco and started to integrate herself into the elite intellectual circles there. So she would have been very well aware of the Sierra Club going up, taking these mountain hikes in the summer. Women had more freedom to enter and be active on their own in the Sierra than women did in the American East at a concurrent time. And this is true going back decades. One of the first and most famous visitors to Yosemite in 1861 was was a 70-year-old lady, Jane Franklin, the the wife of the British Arctic explorer. And there was even a a Franklin Rock that was well-known in Yosemite. Sally Dutcher 
in the 1870s becomes the first woman to ascend Half Dome and I think a number of other Sierra Peaks. Dutcher ran Carlton Watkins's gallery in Yosemite. And then later, we think one of his spaces in San Francisco. And so there was, throughout the late 19th century, this association or, or this understanding that, that women could go into the High Sierra just as men could, maybe in a way that wasn't present in the culture, say, of the White Mountains at, at, at the time or at the, the, the beginning of the tourist era and the whites. I think she was someone who wasn't, you know, she wasn't interested in scaling famous peaks or anything like that. She never did that. In fact, she only got to Yosemite fairly late in this whole trajectory of her relationship with the, the Sierra. That That's almost an afterthought. She doesn't get there until like 1913, 1914, 1915. And all of the important photos that she made in the Sierra were done just scrambling around all of these different places around Lake Tahoe, basically. She did go to Chasta, I must say, a couple of times, but nothing good really came of those trips, unfortunately. Her best work was done at in the Desolation Wilderness area around Pyramid Peak and all of those places to the, to the west of Tahoe. So Brigman starts making what she calls mountain prints, in 1905. And then, of course, in 1906, California and the Pacific West are changed by by the 1906 earthquake and fire. So, so Brigman had made a couple pictures, notably the brook and the dryad uh, in, in the High Sierra in 05. How does the earthquake impact what, what, she, what she makes? And that is key, I think, to her story, as it was to so many artists in that area. She was lucky in that she didn't have a studio in, in San Francisco. Everybody in Oakland, of course, and Berkeley watched the city burn from across the bay. You could easily see it. But she said that her nerves were completely frayed after that. And what made this all the more horrible was the apocalyptic fire. It wasn't really the quake. It was the fire that destroyed the city. Fire burned for three days. And they could see the city going up in smoke as the fire made its way through different neighborhoods. And she and a, and a group of friends and her sister, her youngest sister, Elizabeth, decided, yes, that they had to go back up to the mountains, this place where Muir had declared, you know, was the absolute most therapeutical place you could go to rehabilitate your body, your soul, this is where you went. She decided that that was the only thing that was going to help. And then when she got up there in 1906, after this horrendous traumatic experience, she claimed it It appeared to her in a flash that she saw figures coming out of the trees. And so she went back then and posed one of her lovely, sylph-like young friends in these huge crevasses or alongside these old, dying, decaying trees, some of which were hundreds of years old, these old junipers, these old pines. And it's not that they were dying. They looked like they were dying because they were so old and they had received the blows of of the climate, you know, the uh, cold in the winter and the 
harsh winds and and uh, all of that, but they were still alive. I think this kind of death in life, you know, suddenly appealed to her. She suddenly saw that in nature, whereas before she only saw the mirror side of it, beautiful, fresh, sparkling streams. The water was so pure, you know, and delightful. It was an elixir. It tasted like champagne and so on. And that's how she photographed some of her her friends as a kind of, you know, nymphs, naiads who inhabited springs. And so- you're, you're describing the brook from 1905, for example. Yes, but now her compositions have a narrative that is, I would say, unique, where sometimes these trees seem to be pulling the female figure who's positioned within it in a crack or a niche as the tree splits. She often liked to get these old trees that were splitting in two. And, and the female figure gesturing upward as if she's trying to climb out of it or plead to heaven for some kind of help. And the tree is pulling her down into its incredible, enormous mass of gnarled roots. There isn't any escape. And so she gave these things titles to kind of clue people in, like the dying cedar was one of the first, as she said, the soul of the blasted pine. The soul being the nymph figure, this beautiful female nude who is struggling to get away from this dying, monstrous, patriarchal tree, which has been blasted almost in, into nothingness. And she can't escape. Her, her fate is going to be the death of the tree. She's going to die with the tree. The tree is pulling her down into the earth. So that that appealed to her, and these photographs, as she said, were a sensation. She had had a show in San Francisco in 1905, and people responded warmly to those pictures. But in 1906, I think she just blew everybody away, because these these pictures did speak. Here's a moment where nature is perceived as aggressive, destructive, threatening to human beings. And where did this come from? This nature attacking, you know, human human figures, uh, showing this incredible aggression. But you know, the gendering then of the the composition in terms of this feminine figure which is menaced by this dark patriarchal this ugly monster of a tree, I think is important too. It's an important part of the the story that she's telling. But in any case, in San Francisco, they were a sensation when she showed them later in 1906. Stieglitz loved them. He decided to make her the figurehead of his photo secession movement and kind of shove Gertrude Kasebeer aside. He wanted to hear women speak for themselves about their own bodies, their own sexuality. And the story of a middle-class mother and child just didn't cut it for him anymore. She had served her purpose. Now he found somebody else who had a new story, a much more exciting one, one that was shocking. So after that that summer, you have this whole flow of images from from Brigman, conceptualizing, again, the violence of nature and how it can erupt suddenly where you least expect it to exert its horrible 
cruelty. Yeah, there's a, a work that's a really good example of that is The Dragon and the Pearl from 1908, which, which mixes or blends the personal you were describing along with her ability and interest in bringing a, a strikingly broad, for the time and place especially, range of cultural interests into her work. What is that picture and what makes it so kind of, I don't know, advanced isn't the right word, but it's... Ad- yeah, no, it's, it's edgy. And, you know, with a lot of these compositions that com- create these hybrid figures of, of a female nude, which is grafted on to this old, monstrous, hideously malformed tree, as, that, as we see in that one. Now, that particular picture was very important to her. Because it is her. She is the model in that picture. She had sailed with her husband across the Pacific a few times early on in their marriage. And during one of those first trips, she fell down a hole into the lower depths of the ship and so injured her her chest that they had to remove one of her breasts. Obviously had to do a mastectomy right there. It must have had a some kind of a doctor, someone who knew something about the body. But they stitched her up in such a way that it must have been extremely painful afterwards. It was just, as someone said to me, I don't know what was worse, the losing of the breast or the horrible butcher job of stitching her back together that was done in response to it. And you can actually see that. We see what her body really looked like in some of the unretouched negatives that are at George Eastman House. And it's pretty, it looks pretty raw still and pretty painful to even 10 years afterwards. It's a massive scar, massive amount of scar tissue that moves across the whole left side of her body. So she almost never modeled for her photographs, but she did a few times. And in this one occasion, she did. She found this incredible tree that does look like a dragon. It's coming straight out from a cave in a cliff. And she climbed out onto the middle of it and sat there side saddle, turned her left side of her body away from the camera, so that you wouldn't see the that part of her body where the breast had been removed. And then later on, the picture was retouched in the studio. You can see how she actually with uh, scraped away at the negative to give the tail of the dragon, that is the part of the tree that's coming out of the, the cave, a kind of an undulating line. And that's a manipulated part of the photograph. But this this photograph of her is this incredible self-portrait of her riding this grotesque tree, which has its origins, I think, by by naming it a dragon in local the local fort folklore about Chinatown and about San Francisco, really. San Francisco's whole identity is revolving around Chinatown. But in any case, here she's riding this thing somewhat triumphantly, as if she's tamed it. She's no longer threatened, as some of the other nymphs are, with death. She exhibited it one time only, locally, and then it was never exhibited again, and she never sold prints of it. But she kept this particular print on the wall of her house, of her living room, for decades. So it had a lot of 
a lot of personal meaning to her, I think, in terms of her own personal development, her own way of coming to live her life in a very independent way in which she was subject to no one. There are more problematic readings of the picture. I mean, in 1906, those San Francisco fires were enormously exacerbated by dynamiting done by the city, and the city of San Francisco intentionally dynamited Chinatown, both because the city was embarrassed by it, but also because real estate interests wanted control of that land. I suppose one way of reading Brigman's photograph is that the Chinese in San Francisco, and this is, you know, San Francisco had been a very, very bigoted place toward the Chinese going back to the 1850s. One way of reading the picture may be that the Chinese had been tamed and driven out or or culturally repressed and destroyed and taken over. Yes. And and she would have, I think, very much believed in that as a what she considered to be a highborn woman, very much have felt herself superior in, in every way. It's just part of her class, her caste, the elite group she was with. Charles Keeler, for example, who was really a, a very important political figure in Berkeley, this poet and this naturalist to whom she was close, believed that Asian people, Japanese and Chinese, should be treated fairly and equally in, in work, but he didn't want them to live in his neighborhood in Berkeley. He didn't think they should go beyond a certain line, literally where the railroad tracks ran. They shouldn't cross that line. And that was the attitude of so-called enlightened people of that generation, that people should be treated fairly, perhaps, but they they shouldn't mix, and that each to his own culture. One of the things, one of the images for the fire that was coined by locals was to refer to the fire as a dragon that emerged suddenly and abruptly out of the earth. You know, this is a euphemism, in other words, for the the quake and the fire. And it was explicitly compared to the Chinese dragon that was paraded through the streets of Chinatown during its festival days, but also the awful, sublime specter of the degraded you know, Chinese and their their neighborhoods while they live there. There were also, and this is something I bring up in relation to the, that particular image, lots of stories of abductions of white women by Chinese and Japanese men. And there's a whole history, of course, of nativists creating fear over the Chinese and over the Japanese, both of which were lumped collectively into the term Mongolian through conjuring up images of Asian men coming into proximity with white women. There's a whole specter, a mythical specter of white slavery that went on in the bowels of Chinatown. Chinatown supposedly contained a a warren, a network of underground rooms and passages that went down some six stories. And if you went down there, who who knows what you would find? You would find all sorts of horrors, all sorts of, you know, drug dealing, thievery, criminals, white slavery, all kinds of prostitution. It was a hideous, it was literally a descent into hell and Hades. 
So yes, I totally agree with you. I think that that image is completely embedded in all of that local lore about Chinatown. And this isn't the only photograph where she finds these trees, these monstrous trees, and calls them dragon trees. She she loved it. She delighted in this. You write that in the very late aughts and in the early 1910s, Brigman's nude, her nymph figure, as you call it, becomes more powerful. Works such as the storm tree, Via Dolorosa. What in those pictures reads as becomes powerful? I think that those photographs that you're talking about that happen right after she comes back from New York are angry photographs, some of them. It's like she's going through a death. One Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, way of pain is is a picture in which she envis and she is the model for that picture, by the way. She envisages her own death, her own being pulled under, sucked under into an underground cavern, which is a cavern completely of her own construction, a manipulation on the negative. And kind of painful death, slow death, by being wedded to this monstrous old tree with with roots that look like you know the, the tree would suddenly come alive and it would get up and start walking and uh, devour anything in its path it's it's really i find it a kind of difficult image to to look at in many ways and one of the things that's interesting about it is that she's painted the blackness of the hole that, that leads into the underground into her tomb over the left side of her body, that is, where the breast has disappeared. And so, in a way, all of this, I think, is very much tangled up with her own feelings about herself as a woman and her oppression as a woman and, and then the way that she had to finally liberate herself. And she saw, at, at that time, she started to reinterpret these photos, not then as a saga of the Sierra so much as her own personal story and struggle for for liberation from a promise she had made early in her life, a promise she had given and, and couldn't keep, which she suffered for. She was a person of great conscience being raised by these, you know, Protestant missionaries. She took life and she took all of these sacraments, you know, marriage and so on, very seriously. And this was a horrible thing for her that she could not continue to live as a kind of pillar of a community, you know, married to, you know, and living in a prestigious sort of upper middle class situation. But she chose this for herself, the life of art and the life of creativity and the life of being, you know, what was for them a bohemian woman. You know, one of the things I think I see in a lot of Brigman's pictures from 1902 on is that she's is painting. The 1902 picture, The Mirror, recalls Courbet's work from the end of the 1850s and the early 1860s of women painted with a handheld mirror, the famous pictures of Whistler's model, Joe, but also an 1859 painting at, at Basel. The painting, The Pool, from 1906, suggests a... a particularly European pastoral, maybe more Puvi or, or you know, contemporary Matisse than, than Cezanne, like 0405 Matisse. The, her, her 
picture Dawn is, is kind of a Sierra Venus. And a lot of her pictures seem to play on ground. I'm not sure who's looking at whom, but maybe both that Arthur Bowen Davies or Arthur Frank Matthews or Guitardo Piazzoni, who was after Keith, probably the most prominent San Francisco painter of these years, were making. What do we know or what do you think about what she's taking from painting? Probably in the studio pictures, I think probably a lot. In the Sierra, I think that those pictures are more fortuitously and serendipitously, spontaneously, if I may compose. Those pictures to me don't so much recall some of those prototypes you're you're citing. Corbet was a spiritualist, as was Whistler. Whistler conducted lots of seances, and often mirrors were used as a kind of way, a, a kind of way of putting people into a trance state. You know, stare at it long enough, and you get hypnotized by the eye or the the glimmer of light or whatever you you see there. She too, you know, had this very strong spiritualist streak where she in later later in her life she became a full blown theosophist. But I think that there is that same kind of self examination there in search of something beyond, you know, the material and the earthly, but this inner unspeakable, strange something that she was always chasing that. And a lot of the painters you're talking about, it seems to me, they're very much invested in those ideas as well. One of the big terms for Brigman, where she finds the spiritual, is in this idea of the uncanny, which is a term she loves. And she says that all of her mountain pictures are about the uncanny. In her pictures, both the studio works and, and later, her use of a crystal ball. In, in other words, if you can't figure it out on your own, well, here's a very concrete symbol of what this picture is is all about. She's less prolific, at least as a printer, in the last 30 years of her life, between 1920 and, and 1950. Is she making work? And, and I guess by making work, I mean printing, because we have negatives from that era. There's a huge collection of her negatives, what, 600-some, something like that anyway, at what used to be called the George Eastman House, in which I'm still learning to call the Eastman Museum <laughs> in, in Rochester, New York. But but so what is she what is she doing in those 30 years, and how is she expanding her creative interests beyond photography? So her whole being is defined by her the kind of Calvinism she absorbed in her childhood, and yet rejected. She rejected, you know, the orthodox tenets of Calvinism later on. And yet all of this sort of grasping on to the idea that you're a superior spiritual being comes out in her search for other ways of reconfiguring it. And the main one, you know, after World War One, is her attempt to become a theosophist, which she does. She joins the Theosophical Society in Oakland, which wasn't an easy thing to do. You had to study a lot of different texts and pass like oral 
exams. They weren't written exams, but they had to be convinced that you actually understood the tenets of the society. And modernism has had a really tough time accepting and integrating into the narrative of, of modern art this idea that these formal modern systems of representation really come into being through this search for a spiritual dimension. The two, you know, seminal abstract artists, Mondrian and Kandinsky, were both committed theosophists and took their entire systems of representation from theosophical tracts. This was a major intellectual strand of investigation of, of the true nature of the world. And scientists were as involved in it as were artists. It was a way of bringing, in fact, science and scientific language to understanding the nature of, of existence. And theosophy through, drew extensively on scientific language and scientific understanding. And so therefore we see Brigman in the 20s exploring the idea, these concepts that the theosophists were saying pictured the invisible life that we couldn't see only through maybe x-ray or something like that, some other, other type of technology that would permit the eye to see what was invisible. And so if you couldn't see that with the naked eye, but you know it's there, then it opened up the possibility that there could be another form of life, what was called the fourth dimension, what people in the Stieglitz circle called the fourth dimension. There could be a fourth dimension that we couldn't see, but what was there nevertheless. And it was this that artists and composers not really photographers, but filmmakers sometimes, avant-garde filmmakers, started to explore how can we visualize this invisible world. This was incredibly important to this generation of intellectuals. And Brigman became one of these. She didn't just stop with these incredibly successful Sierra photographs, but she, as a person, she felt it incumbent upon her to keep evolving toward what she would have called, you know, a higher kind of consciousness. This was, this was key in the language of her spiritualism. So she couldn't realize the, this kind of fourth dimension in a photograph, she thought. And of course, there were lots of spiritualist photographs that had been called out as being fakes. So she didn't want to fall into that trap. So she started to make prints on linoleum blocks that were a very, very, well, I, I call them ideograms because they're very iconographic. They go back to look like black and white images of medieval spiritual ideas, saints and virgins and sunrises with big aureoles around them, things of that thing. The idea of radiation, of vibratory energy you know, an energy that was spiritual and that you couldn't see, that's what she was trying to picture. And she spent, well, a long time in the part of the 20s, part of the 30s, making these linoleum prints, which are are quite interesting in and of themselves. But they, they were also key to the 
final phase of her life, which is her exile from the Sierra, leaving maybe the part of the world she loved most to move down to the beachfront of Long Beach, where her family, some of her family had moved, her mother. And with that, too, reminded her of the past of, of Hawaii, certainly. She never lived farther from the beach than one block from 1929 till she died in 1949. She started photography again when she got to Long Beach, photographing, well, making abstract compositions from things, patterns she found on the beach in the sand, and also seascapes reduced to a simple strip of water and sky. And she also began to write poetry. She began to study poetry with a local teacher and found that she had a real talent for it. So her last great project was to pull together a whole compendium across her lifetime of her photographs from every, all, all of periods from the Sierra on with the poems that she wrote at this time in her life, really trying to make sense of her journey, the life that she had gone through. She had suffered several deaths in her family by that time and felt very alone, I think, alienated and divorced from all of the friends she left behind in the East Bay. She was a a star, a celebrity in Berkeley's elite culture, and she, she gave all of that up. She went there to be near her mother, who was very ill, but for some reason, maybe after these family deaths, she just wanted to be near her family. And after her mother's death, two of her sisters were there in the area, so she she stayed there. Yeah, there are a number of those beach and Pacific pictures, presumably made in and around Long Beach, are reproduced in the book as digital positives from from negatives. I mean, they remind me of Wynn Bullock's. You know, I, I imagine there's some art history to be done on how other photographers and artists knew or may have known them. Excellent. Kathleen Pine, thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. Though disappointed by the abrupt halt to the live program, the Modern is excited to introduce a gathering and discussion alternative online. As a long-running program, Tuesday Evenings has an amazing archive to draw from, and that's exactly what The Modern intends to do. Join The Modern as usual on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Drinks and snacks are on you, but The Modern will provide thought-provoking content and lively discussion. The Modern is kicking off this new endeavor with the art critic, writer, curator, and art world icon, Lucy Lepard, who presented Undermining, in which she discussed pits and erections on April 17, 2012. Lepard's talk is as inspiring and relevant now as then. We hope to share airtime and exchange ideas with you this coming Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Go to themodern.org, which will have a link to the YouTube stream. Countdown begins at 6.30 p.m. Terry Thornton, the Modern's Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with a friendly and stimulating chat to follow. That's Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m., on YouTube and via themodern.org. Experience Nasher Windows, a new series at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Providing exhibition space to North Texas-based artists, Nasher Windows highlights site-specific work 
or work made for exhibitions impacted by the pandemic shutdown. New artists are featured weekly until the building reopens. On view now through the entrance windows on Flora Street, Nasher Windows is an accessible way to engage with art safely while social distancing, free to the public. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Melissa Ewan, the Associate Curator of Exhibitions at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. We're going to talk about some of the Sheldon's recent acquisitions and, in one case, the pretty darn neat way in which the museum acquired. Melissa Ewan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. We're going to talk Sheldon acquisitions, and we're going to start with a particularly recent acquisition, uh, Analia Saban, who's, who's been on the program, and we'll have a link to that segment on manpodcast.com. Before we talk about the specific acquisition, I was fascinated to learn how the Sheldon acquired the Saban, the process through which it went. Could you detail that for us? So for this acquisition, I worked closely with our Sheldon Student Advisory Board, and this acquisition was actually their selection for the 2019-2020 acquisition that they proposed. And the Sheldon Student Advisory Board is a student group that has been in existence since the early 2010s, and they are really the student voice of the museum. When they were first founded, their mandate was to plan programs and to help out with events and to really kind of get a sense of what museum work was like from the programming side of things. And about three years ago, the museum decided to experiment a little with this group, and we implemented the acquisitions project. And so working closely with the curatorial team, they would first get to know the collection a little to see kind of what we have and what our kind of collecting patterns were like. And then they would then decide on what they were interested in, what students wanted to see in the museum. And so for this third year, they were really interested in this idea of what is art. And so they were deciding between actually a number of Analia Saban's work, including this plastic bag, but also some of her clothing tags as well. And eventually they decided on the plastic bag because it was just so visually compelling, like, you know, seeing the print on the wall with its kind of three-dimensional sculptural relief quality and really questioning, like, what is this? Is this a plastic bag? Is it art? So they kind of started thinking about this acquisition's project from that standpoint. And then this eventually expanded into a number of questions that they wanted to have, including conversations about environmentalism and about consumerism and really this idea of like everyday things and can everyday things become art. Completely fascinating because certainly where I went to college, there was nothing of the sort at many levels. And I didn't go to college that far away from, from, from Lincoln. How do students get on this board and have the opportunity to build your collection? So for this instance, we sent out a call to all the student groups, to departments who whose students may be interested in the arts, and we had anywhere from 25 to 28 students across many dis- disciplines and both undergraduate and graduate students who really worked on this project. And after they've narrowed down their selection, um, we actually opened the voting on the work to students across campus via this Google form. And it was really interesting to see 
what students were interested in and to really see how, as the groups of students changed over the years, what they were interested in also changed. Well, let's introduce the the object and then maybe maybe get into that more. It's called Danka Merci, Thank You, Gracias, Arigato, Plastic Bag. And the printer is Mixographia, and it's a 2016 work. What about its address and objecthood captivated their interest? They were, like I said earlier, fascinated by this idea of what is art and what can be art. And really looking at an image of the print, it looks like a plastic bag that's been framed and kind of put on the wall. And so kind of thinking about the mass kind of manufactured quality of a plastic bag and then looking closely at the actual print itself, you can really see this difference where if you look at the print, you can see how the printing isn't exactly super precise in the way that we associate with like a manufactured plastic bag. So that way kind of gives a certain sense of the man-made quality to this print and really thinking about the process of how this work was made. Yeah, it's a, it's a smart but very entertaining engagement of the trompe tradition as well. I mean, I guess it is three-dimensional, but it also references flatness in three dimensions. I guess if that's a fair way to put it. <laughs> I mean, it, it is three-dimensional. The, the sheet measures an inch and a half deep. The print does protrude from the, the sheet from which it kind of like literally emerges. Yeah, I noticed the dimensions of the work even include that depth, which is like a trompe giveaway in in the title card, right? <laughs> so had had the museum has several other... Sabans, were those acquisitions related to what the students wanted to do, or was that how the students became familiar with her work? How did what's the relationship between them? The two other Analia Saban works that Sheldon holds are from her clothing tag series. One of them is the Union logo, and the other is made in no designed in France, made in China. And those two acquisitions were separate from this student acquisitions project. And the way the students became interested in Analia Saban's work was that I was going to print fair last year and we were in the middle of kind of deciding which work the museum would acquire. So I told the students, hey, if you see anything interesting while browsing the print fair website, let me know. I'll take a look at it. I'll photograph it. And photograph the works for you and we can talk about it when I come back. And they were really struck by Annalisa Saban's work because it really does make us question what a print is and what a print can be. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I suddenly wish I'd had that experience when I was in, in college. I know, I know, so do I. And that's why it's really um, gratifying to work with the students to really see what they're interested in because like last year, the students were really interested in thinking about what narratives women artists could make. And then this year, it's completely different. So there's some other interesting things that the Sheldon has acquired recently. And one of them is a magnificent Stanley Whitney painting, a painting that I've seen myself. And it seems to have its own, seems to be its own light source. It is almost unimaginably bright. He's He's been on the program Two, we'll have a link to when Stanley Whitney was on the show on the show page. What about this Whitney worked for you all? So the Whitney actually came to us as part of an invitational. And the Sheldon has a long history of doing these 
biannual invitationals. And this work was shown at the museum in 2016. And the invitational was kind of one where the director, Wally Mason, was working with painting faculty by the name of Aaron Holtz. And the two of them were thinking about artists whose careers were perhaps not, didn't quite follow the standard trajectory. And the um, invitational was actually titled, It Was Never Linear, in reference to this kind of non-traditional career trajectory. And for this Stanley Whitney, yes, it is a wonderful, vibrant painting when you say like there seems to be its own light source. Like, yeah, the two, the oranges and the reds in the center really does seem to kind of vibrate. And talking about the painting when um, Tyler, you had seen it, Aritzo saw it when it was installed in Sheldon Treasures. And we actually had to put it across the gallery from our Mark Rothko. Originally, we had put the two right next to one another and it just did not work. The Rothko just... <laughs> The Rothko looked horrible. So it really does speak to how vibrant this painting is and how like the blocks seem to then kind of merge with the horizontal kind of lines delineating the different tiers to the painting. One of the interesting things about the Sheldon's collecting and its collection is that it's an unusually broad collection for a university art museum. You know, it reflects decades of, of work and not just one or two university donors. And it has a lot of strength in American art. And so among your recent acquisitions is an enormous, very horizontal, very horizontal, if you will, rack straw downs. What does that painting do for you and your collection? And then I'll ask you about the distortion within it. We have a strength in our collection of American landscapes, like with the Bierstadt that, Tyler, you saw when you were visiting. It's a, it's a magnificent Bierstadt, one of his best from the 60s and 70s. It is not a Yosemite, it is not a Tahoe, but it's referring to both. And that it also has some of our docent's favorite activity to do with the small children is to find the ghost deer, because he paints out a deer in the foreground. In addition to the Bierstadt, um, we have a number of Marson Hartley um, landscapes, and we also have um, landscapes by Arthur Dove. So we do have this rich tradition. And so the Rackstraw Downs acquisition really does bring that tradition into the 21st century in this really interesting way. The painting, the format of this painting, it's long and narrow. It measures 24 inches high and over 90 inches wide. So it's really long and skinny. And it's a view of the Texas-Mexican border, where Downs traveled to for a number of years in the late 90s and 2000s, where he would spend his um, winter painting. So in this particular work, we see him setting up his easel under a farm building, and we see that farm building really arcing in this kind of um, panoramic, in a way it defies the eye in a way, but but even with that distortion, it's actually what he th he sees when he kind of scans the landscape. It's a covered pavilion, and we see in the top quarter to third of the painting the the underside of the pavilion roof, kind of timber frame with corrugated metal above it. And the roof is completely distorted. It appears to be curving and moving toward the horizon line on the right-hand side of the painting. And I can't think of what immediately to compare that to, except for like an Ellsworth Kelly curved form, but even that isn't exact. 
it's it's really striking, and I'm not sure where he got it. Do you have any ideas? Rockstraw talks about kind of the eye and seeing and how with a lot of paintings that we kind of associate with landscapes, we have that, you know, that kind of formal recession into deep space where the orthogonals then kind of recede into that one point perspective that, you know, was very much of the Italian Renaissance tradition. But for Rakshaw, when he looks at a landscape and he scans the landscape from left to right, for him, things don't recede convincingly in that linear fashion, but instead they arc in this way. And for, and he's really interested in painting things as he sees them and not as we think we see them. You know, that's so interesting in the context of that Bierstadt, because your Bierstadt is one of Bierstadt's fictional scenes where he improves in his mind, improves upon nature and makes it up. You know, I think there's more of a tradition of that in American painting than than we generally think of. It's just that Bierstadt turned it up to 11. And here Downs appears to be, anyway, leaving nature alone, but what he distorts is the man-made structure or structures with kind of all kinds of suggestions and implications in terms of the American presence, the, uh, the European-American presence in the West included therein. There's also within the painting that, that, that just is so weird. A, a home or what appears to be a home, a building with an air quotes normal roof on the right-hand side of the painting. And when one sees that building is when the distortion of the roof of the pavilion becomes really distracting, really, that's when you notice what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, and that is actually the little yellow house that he rented when he wintered in Presidio. And the white van just kind of in the foreground of um, the little white, the little yellow house is the van that he would drive around Presidio to paint the various, to paint and draw the various other scenes that he's made over the years. Presidio, of course, has kind of an unexpected life in American art history. Stephen Shore made one of his most famous pictures there. You also recently acquired a large Carlos Alfonso painting. It's a classic modernist painting in one sense in that it uses the picture plane as a kind of metaphor. And Alfonso has tilted a surface that variously reads as a table or a bed and tilted it toward the picture plane as a kind of metaphor for instability, kind of that later 20th century way of using early 20th century innovations in painting to refer to things outside painting in, in life itself. What are some of the metaphors he's after? What are some of the real-life experiences he's referencing? So the kind of tilted picture plane that you were talking about, if you look closely, there is a horizontal figure laying on that picture plane with a second figure kind of standing in front of it and standing and kind of almost looming over that figure, although one can kind of debate whether this um, standing figure and what the posture is like. But basically, Alfonso made this painting in late 1990, shortly, about a year or so before his death in 1991 from AIDS. And this was the moment where he went to the hospital to visit his friend, the Miami area curator, Sheldon Lurie, when Lurie himself was very ill. And at this very moment, Alfonso actually also received news that his 
T-cell count was really low as well. So it's this moment where we see Alfonso really grappling with the AIDS epidemic within his community and really thinking about the implications for himself, his friends, and the community in which um, he was really active. So just kind of this moment where he's working through all of these things. And there is this tension, like like you said, Tyler, with that tipping up of this bed, this table, but also with like the kind of lurid yellow that Alfonso employs in the margins. And so just thinking about this tension, I think, really does, in a way, allow Alfonso to really work start to work through what he was going through. Yeah, that yellow is is extraordinary. You know, well, I think he's making some references to still life painting. In the center of the canvas, the, the, the margins have a light, that, that yellow that is totally unlike kind of idealized still life painting light. It's just like a nails on the chalkboard kind of yellow. And then in the upper left, he includes what appears to be an upside down tombstone and a cross. Yes. And even just thinking about going back to the kind of very evocative way of how you described the tables or the hospital bed, it seems like this black void that's like almost sucks the entire composition in. But then when you look very closely, there are elements of greens and yellows that kind of undercuts that. So again, it kind of reinforces the tension that I see in this painting. It's a terrific painting. Melissa Ewan, thanks so much. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.